Radio. Salvation History and the Church. A talk by Father Simon Granger at the Immaculata Mission School 2014, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. Who knows what salvation history is? I guess um, what was, because you know how after the fall, and then there's like little, I guess, little revelations of um, the New Testament, so then I guess it's a Old Testament was foreshadowing the New Testament kind of thing, yeah. and then... I don't know how to explain that's, it. No, that's right. So do you want to elaborate? Yes or no? You're well and truly on the right track. Yep. Um, I guess um, salvation history is about also the way God has been working with his people and um, bringing about um, redemption um, prim- um, fully through Jesus Christ. But like even in the Old Testament where he's like, you know, the prophets and... Um, that's right. It's one of the ways we know, apart from the faith apart from that burning faith in our heart that tells us that Jesus is our Lord, one of the ways intellectually that we know Jesus is the Messiah is because God has a saving plan for humanity which has been unfolding in the lead up to Jesus and that's what Our Lady is singing about. It's about salvation history. It's the way that we can tell that there are marker stones throughout for a thousand years before Jesus that point in the direction of Jesus. It's one of the ways we know of God and his, through his self-revelation to us. And the catechism uh, says uh, there, there's handouts. You don't need to make notes. There are, uh, all of these points are in your handout. Sit, relax, listen, interact. Um, <laughs> So we know, uh, the Catechism says, through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. And St. Paul actually describes this process very clearly in Ephesians, and he says, God chose us in Christ, chose us, chose you and me, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. You're adopted as God's children through Jesus Christ. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery, this word mystery, is the Greek word which in Latin is sacramentum, which in English is sacrament. And in the original Hebrew, it meant the king's secret plan. According to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And the unfolding of this saving plan has had many marker stones through the, New, through the Old Testament, that point towards Jesus. And I've only given you a few here. There are many, many. Um, he uh, entered into a covenant relationship with his people. He entered into a covenant relationship with Noah. He entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, through which he formed a priestly people of God. So remember the priestly people of God. But the point that I want you to focus on here for my purposes today 
is that in God's saving plan, the shepherd king, who was the shepherd king? Yes, and who was the shepherd king before D Jesus? David. And who's, which line does Jesus come from as a man? The line of David, of the house of Judah. David of the line of Judah had a particular importance in God's saving plan, and we can almost pinpoint exactly, it's about the year 980 BC. I'll often give you a date, and I want to emphasize to you, this is not a fairy story, this is history, this is fact, this is real. A lot of German Protestant theologians in the 19th century started to get their knickers in a knot over whether this was all real or whether it was factual. I'm a historian, I'll tell you, this is fact. And so when I point you sometimes to a date, because I want, to know, want you to understand these are real things that happen to real people in real time. So in about 980 BC, God promised that he would raise up David's offspring after David and he would establish his kingdom forever. The prophet Isaiah and we know the exact year this happened. In the year 734 BC, through the prophet Isaiah, God said, Listen now, house of David, the maiden is with child and will soon give birth to a son whom she will call Emmanuel, a name which means God is with us. What's this about? It's foreshadowing Jesus. It's foreshadowing the very thing that Our Lady has sung about in that beautiful Magnificat canticle. It's foreshadowing that a virgin of the house of David would give birth to a son who would be God with us. And it took 734 years for people to come to understand it, but it's a crucial marker stone in the unfolding of salvation history from the Old Testament that points to what happens when we look in Luke and Matthew. God brought his saving plan for humankind to its climax by having the Virgin Mary, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give birth to a son within the house of David, who is our Lord Jesus Christ and who is truly God with us. And so we get to the point of Jesus. Jesus lived in a particular period which appears to be the, the, at the earliest, 6 BC, at the latest for the uh, uh, crucifixion and the resurrection, 33 AD. And not, we don't get there by some haphazard mean, but by a clear plan that God has revealed over a period of a thousand years. And we get to where? We get to Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Saviour, and he's the shepherd king, the servant king, who leads all those united to him in faith as a priestly people of God. And I've got a little illustration before you turn the page. What's the illustration of um, at the foot of the page? And what does that tell us about the kind of king Jesus is? Jesus is, shout it out. Jesus is the servant king. And that's what God wants. He wants to have a son who is our saviour and who is a servant king. He leads us by serving. And what does that tell us about the way in which he wants to us to live out 
our lives yes, as servants, as people who serve. Now, Vatican, Second Vatican Council, when was the Second Vatican Council? Anyone remember? Up at the back? Yeah, that sounds about right, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. that sounds about right. Uh, and the first document which was issued by the uh, Second Vatican Council was Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the church, and it explains that to carry out the will of the Father, beautiful document, you must read it, I've got it there, but um, you must read it. But to carry out the will of the Father, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth and revealed to us the mystery of that kingdom, the church in its fullest sense being the kingdom of Christ now present in mystery and which grows visibly through the power of God in the world. Now we go back to Jesus and to what he, we know he said in the New Testament, in Matthew, he spoke of this community of his followers as the church. It's not a word that came after Jesus, it's a word that Jesus used. Church, which means ecclesia, uh, and in English, an assembly. And in Matthew 18, we see that Jesus promised that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now, in this church, made up of the assembly of his followers, Jesus granted particular authority on St. Peter, Simon Peter, the son of Jonah, um, the leader of the apostles, and he said, you are Peter, this is in Matthew 16, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. We know that, we call that, uh, we refer to that as the power of the keys. And the inauguration of the church, uh, Lumen Gentium points out, uh, deriving from John 19, the inauguration of the church is symbolized by the blood and water which flowed from the open side of a crucified Christ. And when the work which the Father gave the Son to do on earth was accomplished, the Holy Spirit was sent. When? When was the Holy Spirit sent? Yes, where was it sent? The upper room. Where's the upper room? Hmm? Jerusalem on what's called Mount Zion. Has anyone been there? Anyone been to the upper room? Someone putting their hand up? Yeah, there's a hand going up there. Yeah, Cameron's, Father Cameron and I were there. Do you know last, do you know what Father Cameron and I did last Christmas Eve? Last Christmas morning? We walked to Bethlehem. Yeah, yeah, magic. Absolutely magic. Mm. And we went to the upper and we went to the upper room together. Acts two tells us that when the day of Pentecost had come, they that is the who was there? Can you remember who was there? And the brothers and the brothers of Jesus as well. Anyone know who the brothers of Jesus are? The brothers of Jesus are his cousins. Yep, I've got a family tree. I can show you. I give it to the kids in the school. They're his cousins. <laughs> Um, but they call, ah, you're, where's the tongue? Where's my Tongan sister? What do they call brothers and sisters? What do you call your cousins in Tongan? Yeah, your brother and sister. Yep, yeah. Yeah, you call, you, in lots of cultures just call brothers and sisters cousins. Oh, you, I've got another Tongan here too. Yep, yep, yep. 
uh, they call them. They're brothers. They're brothers and sisters. Yep. So, so uh, we, after uh, the uh, descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, these Christian churches grew up in different places. One of the number one places after Jerusalem was a big city in Syria called Antioch. You know who were the leaders of the church in uh, Antioch? Barnabas and, yeah, Saul, Paul. But the bishop, the person who became the bishop of Antioch, not many people know this, was St. Peter. He was bishop of Antioch before he was bishop of Rome. And in Antioch, the Acts of the Apostles tells us, is the first place where people call themselves Christians. So within a very short period after Jesus' resurrection, there were Christian communities starting to spread throughout the Middle East and in Rome uh, that were called Christian churches. And in those churches, St. Peter, who went to Rome and became uh, one of the leading figures in the Roman church, uh, and we know him as the first bishop of Rome, uh, and we accept that by tradition, but there's no doubt he was the leader of uh, one of the major Christian one of the major communities in Rome, and so we call him the first bishop of Rome. He was never called Pope in his own lifetime. Um, that's a title that came much later. Um, but it was accepted that the person who was the Bishop of Rome had a particular leadership authority to help guide the other churches, which also had their own bishops. And by the year 110, there's a wonderful man called St. Ignatius of Antioch. Who's heard of St. Ignatius of Antioch? Yeah, what happened to St. Ignatius of Antioch? Eaten by the lions in the Colosseum, yes. And he said, don't stop. He came all the way from Asia Minor and he kept writing to all the churches saying, you mustn't stop them doing this. I can't wait for this to happen to me. I'm happy it's happening to me. And he went off and he was eaten by the lions in the Colosseum. Uh, and he's the first person who referred in his letters, in these wonderful letters he wrote, um, he referred to the Catholic Church. Anyone know what the Catholic Church means? Universal. It means the whole universal church. Um, and so by the year 325, what, what happened in 325? There was an ecumenical council, the first ecumenical council uh, in Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, called the Council of Nicaea. And at that council, they adopted a creed which is the beginning of the creed, the main creed that we use, uh, which was further refined in 381 to become what's really properly called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. But in 325, they adopted a creed which referred to one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So here we have uh, the way in which Christian church arose, the way in which that church came to be known as the Catholic Church. Um, and, uh, and Jesus entrusted to that church um, some means by which it would carry out its work. And Lumen Gentium again tells us, the church is in Christ like a sacrament, or as a sign, an instrument, both of a very closely knit union with God and of the unity of the whole human race. So, the church is itself a sacrament, a mystery, 
part of God's saving plan. And Jesus Christ established his body, which is the church, as the universal sacrament of salvation. So the church, which is his body, um, is itself a universal sacrament of salvation. The church itself is a sacrament, is a sacrament by which the saving plan of God goes on in the world. Jesus is continually active in the world that he might lead men to the church and through it, through the church, join them to himself and that he might make them partakers of his glorious life by nourishing them with his own body and blood. And the church's first purpose is to be the sacrament of the inner union of men with God. That comes from the Catechism. Um, and for the carrying out of this purpose, the church is entrusted by Christ with seven sacraments, which are the signs and instruments by which the Holy Spirit spreads the grace of Christ, the head, throughout the church, which is his body. So in the church, Christ is the head, and the church, the people who constitute the church, are the body. They are one organism, one living organism. And uh, one definition of a sacrament, there's a very good little book, I've got it in the bibliography there by a man called Kelly. Uh, a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward grace ordained by Jesus Christ by which grace is given to our souls. And the sacraments of the New Testament were instituted by Christ the Lord and entrusted to the church as actions of Christ and of the church their signs and means by which our Catholic faith is expressed and strengthened, worship is offered to God and our sanctification is brought about. And the Code of Canon Law tells us that the sacraments and the sacred liturgy are the principal means by which the Church carries out its office of sanctifying. And who do you think is the principal person in any diocese who is responsible for the sanctifying office? Yeah. Yeah, the bishop. Um, uh, so he is the high priest of the church within his diocese and has this particular responsibility, and the priests and the deacons help him in that. But who else helps him in that? Uh, all the people of God help him in that. People help him as Eucharistic ministers, as religious, as lay people, who do all the many things that are needed in the service of the church and the administration of the sacraments. Now, who can tell me um, uh, what was the Vatican? What was the Council of a Church before Vatican II? Yeah, and what was the Council before Vatican I? Yes, the Council of Trent. Now, the Council of Trent went on for decades and decades. Um, it started in 1547. It went on till is it 1562 or 15? Yeah, 1562. Um, so it went on for a long time. It was the Catholic Church's response to the terrible drama of the Reformation. It's the means by which the Catholic Church declared very clearly what its teachings are on a number of fronts. And it defined what the seven... Uh, amazingly, it's only in 1547 the uh, dogma on, uh, on uh, the sacraments. And, uh, and so it's only at that point that the Church settled on precisely seven sacraments, and they are indeed the sacraments of the Church. The Catechism breaks them up into sacraments of Christian initiation, um, which are baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. Uh, 
um, the sacraments of healing, which are penance and anointing the sick, really incredibly important to keep on focusing on confession as a sacrament of healing. It's not there to punish, it is there to heal. It's crucial that it be used by people in their healing to help them. It's there to help people. It's not there to give people a hard time. It's not there to punish people. It's there to help people, to heal them, and to move them forward in their lives. And then there are two sacraments called the sacraments at the service of communion, which are holy orders and matrimony, um, um, which are about, if you like, the family life of the, of the church. Holy orders, um, how priests, deacons, and bishops um, uh, uh, receive their orders, and matrimony, by which a man and a woman themselves enter into a relationship for the whole of their life for the principal purpose of developing a family. Now, in 1551, the Council of Trent declared that after the consecration of the bread and the wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the consecrated Eucharistic species, and that the Holy Catholic Church has suitably and properly called this change. That's it. Yell it out. Come on. Uh, it's absolutely crucial that you know that word, that you understand that word, and that you not be embarrassed to use that word. Transubstantiation. It's through the sacraments and the exercise of the virtues that the sacred nature of the priestly community of the people of God in the church is brought into operation. And what has Pope Paul VI and the Second Vatican Council called the Eucharist? How is it referred to it as? The source and summit of the Christian life. That is the Eucharist. It is the queen of the sacraments. Um, it's at the heart of all the sacraments. And so in talking about the sacraments, I can't lay sufficient emphasis on the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the whole Christian life. And I will tell you, because I... Uh, uh, don't come from a Catholic background, uh, and uh, so I've had a lot of different experiences before I've become a Catholic, but in my time as a Catholic uh, since 2001, I've come to learn to understand a key, absolutely key thing. I don't think it can be emphasised sufficiently. I believe, this is, this is an opinion, it's not the statement of law, but, so, uh, but I believe this is the conclusion I've reached. The key feature of life as a Catholic as a Catholic of the Latin persuasion, that is, of those who are subject and acknowledge the authority of the Bishop of Rome, as opposed to the Orthodox or the Anglicans or the Lutherans, key feature of life as a Catholic is the real presence of Jesus Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist, by which Jesus is always with us in the Church. Under no, in no other Christian denomination, even if they will say, I always say, when I did an essay on this and about the, the Anglicans and the Lutherans and their view on this, and the Anglicans will say they believe in the real presence, but Catholics believe in the real, real presence. <laughs> and there's a, there, there's, a, there's a difference. Um, there's a difference. There's a difference. Now, there's a little picture at the end there. Does anyone know what that could possibly be, that little not very clear picture Who's heard of the miracle at Bolsena? 
This year's the 750th anniversary of the miracle at Bolsena. In the year 1263, uh, there was a, a priest from Bohemia uh, called Peter, and he had lost his faith in transubstantiation. He came to Rome looking to rediscover his faith uh, in the miracle of the Eucharist. And at Bolsena, in a church at St. Christina, which Cameron and I went to last year, um, uh, he was celebrating the Mass, and he elevated the host, and blood poured forth from the host and descended on the corporal. Uh, the miracle of Bolsena, he, the Pope was staying very nearby at a town called Orvieto at the time, and the man wrapped up the consecrated host in the corporal and took it to uh, the Pope, Pope Urban IV, and Urban IV ordered an investigation of the entire miracle, and on the 11th of August, 1264, so 750 years ago this year, uh, the investigators declared that this was a proven Eucharistic miracle, um, that the host had bled and the blood was shed on the corporal, and indeed it forms what appears to be uh, the face of Jesus on the corporal. And the Feast of Corpus Christi derives from the miracle at Bolsena, uh, and every year, and one of the great things about studying in Rome is that you can go every year to Orvieto, and they carry the corporal in a very... Have you seen this, Father Peter? Um, no. Every year they carry the corporal in a beautiful reliquary in a procession from the cathedral through the town, uh, and then they take it down to Bolsena, uh, some miles away, uh, and it's really a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful occasion uh, uh, for the Feast of Corpus Christi. And so that has been, as you all know, that's not the only Eucharistic miracle that's ever occurred. Anyone got some other, anyone else some other names? Lanciano's another one that's even much earlier than, uh, than, uh, than, than Bolsena. Not as well known, but, but uh, the town's a bit more out of the way, yeah. These are other little marker stones um, on the way they're not. Uh, they're, 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 they're matters for private faith, uh, but it appears clear that from time to time these events occur. These amazing events, which just help sustain people's faith, because this faith in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is utterly essential to life as a Catholic, um, and it manifests itself in the Mass itself. It manifests itself in the reservation of the Blessed Sacrament. It manifests itself in the process of adoration in which we pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, um, but I can tell you, this, beyond all other things, is the thing which defines Catholic life, uh, that is, Roman Catholic life or Latin Catholic life. It is different from any other Christian church. Uh, and every day... And every, every day in every church in the world, virtually, Jesus becomes present in the Eucharist, in the Holy Mass. And all over the world, in churches all over the world, Jesus is present 24 hours a day in the church, in the reserved sacrament. And that is a precious gift, which is really the most amazing gift that God has given us in the whole of this unfolding of salvation history, uh, which he's given to us to feed and sustain and strengthen the church. All seven sacraments do that in their own different ways, 
but the Eucharist, above and beyond all, is the source and summit of our Christian life. So any questions about the sacrament? That was Father Simon Granger with Salvation History and the Church. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.